this is Tiffany Bobo. Welcome to the What's Next podcast. I am super excited today to welcome Steve Dennis to the show. He is the president of Sageberry Consulting, a strategic advisory firm focused on innovation and growth strategy for retail, luxury, and social impact brands. Steve is a retail contributor for Forbes and has been named a top retail influencer by multiple organizations. Prior to founding Sageberry, Steve was SVP strategy and multi-channel marketing for the Neiman Marcus Group, where he drove major growth initiatives and led the company's multi-channel integration, loyalty marketing, and customer insight strategy. Earlier in his career, he held senior leadership positions with Sears, including chief strategy officer and VP of multi-channel integration. Welcome, Steve, to the podcast. Thanks, Tiffany. I'm happy to be here. I'm super excited to talk about you because, or talk with you today because uh, I think this is just an absolute hot topic, retail. Uh, but before we dig in, I always start out my podcast, as my listeners know, with something I call bullish and bearish. Nothing too painful. Bullish if you're for it. Bearish if you're against it. Uh, and in all transparency, many people sort of go down the middle road. So that's fair ground too, but hopefully you'll pick one side or the other. All right. Okay. You ready? All right. Sure. The first one, bullish or bearish? I'm kind of leading you to these, but uh, virtual reality is the new retail store. Uh, bearish. Oh, interesting. Good. We will. Uh, I want to dig into that one. Uh, the next is drone delivery. I'm going to have a lot of qualified bearishes, but I'll say bearish. Okay. So in, in so light quotation marks around bearish on that one. <laughs> yeah. All right. And this one is just kind of leading the horse to the water because it's really the topic of today's conversation. But physical retail is dead. Bullish or bearish? Uh, <laughs> bullish being in, in favor of that statement? Yes. Uh, I would be bearish then. Okay, good. All right, great. Well, that's really the reason I wanted to have you uh, on the podcast. I, I can't tell you how many times I have read or heard or listened to people just basically flat out say, physical brick and mortar retail is dead. And I wanted to have you on the podcast because I think uh, you just put out some fantastic content and work and uh, your your pieces uh, you know, that you write uh, and, the, and the speeches that you give. So maybe what you could do is just kind of start from the top. I think one of the, the camps is, if you will, that there's sort of two, right? There's this retail apocalypse and then there isn't. So maybe you could step us through those two thought processes and, and what you think of both. Sure. Well, I think at the macro level, which is, is of course, where most, most people tend to go, um, the facts just don't line up with the retail apocalypse. and. Some of those facts are, first of all, physical retail, at least in the U.S. It's not, it's not true in every single market. Um, physical retail continues to grow uh, just at a much slower rate than e-commerce. And there are plenty of retailers that continue to open lots of stores. Um, and depending upon which source you want to go to, physical retail still accounts for somewhere between 85 and 91% of all retail. So to me, it's pretty hard to say that physical retail is dead when it's the vast majority of sales and will be for any kind of time period you can, you can think about. I think the, the issue really is that it, 
the outcomes are very unevenly distributed. You, you clearly can find pockets of retail where it's probably fair to say it's been pretty apocalyptic, uh, but you can also find plenty of other areas where that, that sort of narrative isn't remotely true. What do you think the difference is between the, you know, apocalyptic and the, and the growers? Because, uh, you know, a friend of mine, um, Jeff Roster and I used to work together at Gardner. He's now with IHL. You know, they do a lot on the retail side and, and they came out with, you know, most, more stores have opened than have closed. Right? And so there's obviously a difference between brands that are struggling and those that aren't. Yeah, well, I, you know, I've seen all sorts of data, um, some, some of which, yeah, does, does show that, uh, others which, which definitely show a net uh, store closing. But, you know, to answer your question, I think there's been kind of two waves, I guess, of the apocalypse. The first wave, which I think for the most part is over, uh, was those retailers that were more or less affected by the phenomenon of being able to digitally download products. So when you think about books and music and a lot of entertainment, um, if you were in that business, so Blockbuster, Borders, Barnes and Noble, um, you know, clearly that was a huge change that made most, if not all of physical stores irrelevant. So, um, you know, train sort of left the station on that for a number of years. What I think is going on now, or at least over the last several years, has been what, what I frequently call to the collapse of the middle, which is stores that basically aren't particularly differentiated on either end of the spectrum. The spectrum being either very value, convenience focused, or really different on the experiential side or somehow offering a premium product or service. So, and Deloitte has done a really good study to look at some of this in more depth where you really see the concentration of store closings are, are these people that are kind of stuck in this boring middle, uh, whereas you see plenty of store openings on the part of, say, off-price retailers or dollar stores or some of the more discount-oriented grocery stores. And similarly, you see plenty of growth on the higher-end or more experiential retailers. So, so to the extent you want to say there's a, a more recent apocalypse, it tends to be among um, you know, department stores and some of these other retailers that, that don't really have a clear uh, value proposition. And so why do you think some of these retailers, because I, I, I would argue, right, I, I talked to, to some retailers that'll kind of, you know, they'll almost make a comment and let's call it the last 12 to 24 months, like, wow, the market has really changed. <laughs> and you sort of go, you think? <laughs> Okay. And, and now they're starting to kind of act. They're feeling like, wow, I'm really on the brink of not being able to turn this around. So what do you think the reason was that some of those that were potentially in the middle, those ones that were stuck in the middle, you know, minus the guys that you just uh, described, right? Where there was this digital disruption, right? I went from having to physically go to a store and get something that I could just now download it minus them. But the ones that are stuck in the middle that had a choice you know, I, I can try to be more effective online or even get myself online or in store, I can start to be much more experiential, right? And really say, oh, well, I sell shoes and the guy down the street sells the same shoes, but I want to make it a much better experience. So what do you think held them back from doing one of those two things? Well, I think uh, probably a lot of, a lot of things. I mean, one is there is kind of a classic, uh, innovators dilemma or you know a lot of what has been talked about in innovation generally where it's difficult for people that are or companies that are uh, have huge investments in in cultures that are anchored in a, in a particular 
part of the market to significantly change. So I think some of this is just a classic problem we see that is not exclusively retail. Uh, I also think that, um, well, you know, to your, <laughs> to your point, I mean, it's really funny to me when I hear people say what, you know, essentially what you said, which is, oh, things have, have changed a lot uh, recently. And um, I'm like, well, you know, things have been pretty clearly changing. Pretty right. That's what I mean. You know, uh, even for so, a company you used to work for, right. I, you know, one of the earnings calls and uh, the CEO said, you know, oh, our customers have really changed. This was only like 18 months ago or something. You're kind of like, yeah. you know, you think like, really? <laughs> and, 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 he, and they're right at the well, tip of that spear of closing, right. And really struggling. Well, you know, I think, I think, you know, any particular retailer situations are often idiosyncratic, but I mean, I would say the two fundamental things that I see are uh, organizations that are not fundamentally really paying attention to what's going on in the market and, and don't deeply understand customer behavior. Um, you know, there's any number of retailers, including some I've worked for that, that had some of the data about um, how many customer journeys were starting in a digital channel, how many customers were uh, shopping in multiple channels and yet still persisted in operating the e-commerce channels and the physical channels as if they were totally separate. Um, and so, I mean, I think you can see a great example to me is Nordstrom. Um, when I joined Neiman Marcus in 2004, it was pretty clear from some of the things that Nordstrom was doing that they really, even though it was early, they really understood uh, some of this cross-channel behavior, and we're starting to break down some of the silos and really be more channel agnostic. Um, and I can tell you, there were some other retailers that that clearly had some of this data you know, ten ten or more years ago. So, uh, so one, I think it's just: are you really paying attention? Are you fundamentally customer centric? Are you really understanding what's going on? And then, you know, the bigger issue is: are you really prepared to take the risk and deal with some of the um, the inherent fear that you have around fundamentally changing your organization and making some of the investments. And I would say to your point, I think the thing that I'm really worried about and, and something I've written, written about recently is just, you know, for a lot of retailers, it's just too late for them to change. They let the last 15 or 20 years happen to them. And now they've got very, very, they're, they're way behind and they have very few options to really catch up. Yeah. And so I was just going to say, I was just going to ask that question, right? I mean, I think you and I probably have similar conversations, usually because of where I work. You know, I get asked from a technology standpoint, and I and I always say that technology is an enabler, but it's not going to fix this problem. That a lot of it has to do with uh, the people and process side, and and within people, I would say, you know, organization leadership, culture, right? People being kind of a big bucket term, uh, and process yeah. being we've always done it this way and it's worked. So why would we change or we're still growing and we don't need to change, which may have been why people ended up here because they just didn't think they needed to change because they were still growing. And then by the time it caught up to them right. that they were no longer growing, like you just said, it's hard to kind of turn that pivot a business. And, and if you're a one store, let's say you're a one store retailer and they, they find themselves in this situation uh, that might might be a capital reason they can't get themselves out of it. Sure. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, it's yeah, well, I was going to say, I think I, I do think it is particularly problematic for smaller retailers because I do think there in many cases are, uh, 
you know, dealing with what's going on with e-commerce and digital, there are some pretty significant investments in many cases to try to keep pace with the, with the bigger guys, particularly Amazon. So, um, so in a way they could be ex excused. Some of the bigger players with a lot of resources and access to information, I'm, I'm not sure there is, there is a get out of jail free card for that. Yeah. And I, and I always say, you know, when people are like retail is dead, I always go, well, then I guess Amazon buying a retailer doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, yeah. uh, and, and that retail in those, uh, experiential brands, um, it isn't about a big bang effect. Like if you take someone like a Sephora or an Ulta that, that has really leaned into experiential over time and, and using digital in new and innovative ways, maybe some of that virtual reality and, um, a lot of the digital while combining that with the store and, and taking a lot from the playbooks of things that you've developed many years ago on the loyalty side. I mean, there's all kinds of things that they're doing, but it's small little things they're doing. It's not this big bang. So, I mean, sometimes improving the customer experience or becoming more customer centric has a lot to do on the people side, which isn't expensive. Yes, no? Uh I think that's true. I mean, I think there is, I guess one observation I would say, and, and there certainly are, are a few exceptions, but, you know, for the most part, the retail industry doesn't know how to do innovation. Uh, I think they often, I find that a lot of retailers think about it as, as being kind of idea generation. And then there's this kind of assumption that there's going to be this silver bullet that right. somehow will magically transform your organization. And I think to your point, in most cases, I mean, there clearly have been a few really significant innovations, but for the most part, the, and I think the examples you cite, uh, Volta Sephora, you know, Starbucks, Apple, et cetera, I mean, they've done a lot of different things over time that in many cases are enabled by technology, but have a lot to do with process and people and trying stuff and pivoting from that and, and so forth. And so I think, and I, you know, I don't claim to be an innovation expert per se, but I think that most of the legacy retailers that are really struggling never really understood and still don't for the most part, how to have an innovation process that consistently generates good results. It's more sort of a miracle is going to happen, or you know, maybe they ultimately get to the place where they have to make an acquisition to try to change things. And, you know, most acquisitions tend not to work out. So, so a lot of them have just really back themselves into into a corner and I don't think fundamentally understands, understand what um, innovation is about. Um, so yeah, now they're in a, in a place where it's almost impossible to catch up. Yeah. And I think innovation for me, um, especially in something like retail, I often get asked, you know, what is customer centricity? <laughs> like what is, what does right. being customer centric mean? What, what's your definition of those two terms or a variation of those terms? So if it's, you know, if you had a client sitting in front of you, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to become more customer centric, right? Or we're, we want to really lean into customer centricity or you know, we want to compete on customer experience. And you say to them, right, well, what does that mean to you? <laughs> what, what do you hear? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, customer centricity is one of those words like, uh, seamless integration or you know, some of these phrases that, that people throw around. And my experience most of the time at the risk of sounding sort of catty or cynical is when, when you go to the next level, most people don't have a working definition. Right. Um, so typically with customer centricity, one thing I, I typically would look for was, first of all, do you have some sort of actionable, actionable customer segmentation? So can you, can you tell me about 
your most valuable customers and your most growable customers and the customers you're looking to acquire and, and describe them in terms of potential value and their needs and their attitudes and so forth. So, so, so somehow or other, they have to be able to dissect the customer at large or broadly and put it into some meaningful segments that, that can be understood. And then I look to see, well, what do you really know about these different segments? And how, how do you understand, I think, and this has become much more important in the last few years, how do you understand their customer journey? And what do you know about uh, how you intersect in that customer journey? Where are their points of friction? Where are their opportunities to amplify the, the experience? And I think, you know, those folks that are really customer experience, are really customer centric and have figured out how to make this part of their, their DNA, so to speak, that's a very easy thing to do. And I think you can point to, say, a, a Sephora and you can look at their mobile application, for example, and, and see that they understand these different customer segments and they understand the different pieces and they understand how to put together a customer experience that, that works for a number of different customer segments in a powerful way. Plenty of other retailers, I think, you know, they just have demographic descriptions or they've done some very generic studies, but they don't really have anything that, that's powerful. And, I, and for actually. me, I think it's, it's has a lot to do with culture and DNA and sort of just the temperament of when decisions are being made, what lens are the decisions being made through, right? So we want to do this. Are you doing it because it's a cost cutting measure? And that's how we're trying to drive growth. Is it, uh, you know, because we uh, are just trying to um, accelerate the top line? You know, what, what's the reason? But putting the customer at the center of yeah. those decisions and, and sure. you know, while Amazon gets used a lot, I, I use it very specifically in this definition that I say, you know, in a, in a Jeff Bezos meeting, there's sort of, you know, there's a couple of things he always does. One of them is there's only as many chairs as there are people in the room. And there's always one em empty chair at the head of the table for the customer. And so that means, you know, this default imaginary person right. is in every big strategic executive meeting, right? Sitting there having a place at the table. And that means something to the executives who are sitting there. So, you know, that is very cultural versus, you know, what products are we developing? And so anything that gets suggested, it's like, well, what does the customer think? I don't care what you think. And I'm just saying that as a, I'm not saying that's what he says. I'm just making a general statement. Uh, right. And, and. To me, that even those simple things or customer service changing its name to customer success or getting metrics that are shared that have some customer attribute, right. net promoter score, CSAT, whatever. And it's those little things when people answer that question or however they define it, if they don't use those kinds of examples in their definition, you know that they're just, they've read some report and now they're going to become a customer experience company, <laughs> right? And nothing changes. Right. Well, yeah, you can, you can, right. And I think those are some good examples because clearly you can, you can decide, you know, it's, well, you yeah. know, it's the old adage of, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. You can, you can decide a lot of things strategically or you can say a lot of things. Um, but over time, you're going to see that play out in what is just kind of the default reaction to customer issues or the kinds of things you describe with Amazon or the metrics that are used and the incentives and, the long-term orientation. And so, yeah, there's a bunch of ways that, that, that tends to, to manifest. And, um, you know, I think there's plenty of companies that are kind of decent at the customer service and, um, but they don't 
they don't really right. have that broader customer success lens. And, you know, that's a, that's a hard thing to change. I think, unfortunately, when, and again, I think it's another reason why we see a lot of these legacy retailers really struggle is first, they haven't been inherently customer centric. And then when they get into trouble, really significant trouble, then the mind shift, even to the extent they had some customer centricity, then, then there tends to be a big shift towards cost cutting, store closings, and and nothing against finance people. But you know, the finance people sort of take over from the, the customer success or, or um, the broader strategic folks. And it's hard to get out of. So if, yeah, it, it, so if you look back in, you know, in your history, if, if you were to say, you know, what are the one or two things you take, you take it away, you know, the kind of, I think as people change jobs and career, you know, over the years that there's one or two things to take away with that. That was a really good lesson I learned at that job. And, and I think you've been at some amazing brands obviously over your career. So if I were to just say, well, you know, one of the one or two things, you know, around the topic we've been having so far at Neiman Marcus that you walked away with, like, you know, what was the lesson that you learned from them as a brand? Because they're known for doing great things in, in this particular space. So what would be the one or two things you walked away from that one? With? Well, I think Neiman Marcus was a great example of, of kind of the, the transition from being customer service oriented to be being more broadly customer, customer centric. And the, the big thing there, and a lot of it, frankly, was very data driven um, because we were very siloed. Uh, we had a pretty successful independently run direct to consumer business, which was um, transitioning from catalog to e-commerce. And then we had our physical stores. And once we started to really understand how customer behavior was was shifting and how digital channels were influencing influencing physical stores and vice versa, um, you know, that that really created a foundation for change. And so that 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 really taught me that uh, or, or sort of set me up to understand that the customer is the channel um, and that this kind of set channel centric thinking is, is really much more of a, a hindrance than than a help. Um, I guess the other thing I would say about Neiman's in particular, uh, which I had you know, nothing to do with, was this really, this orientation towards thinking about customer value from a relationship perspective versus transactions. I think, you know, a lot of retailers are, are very transaction oriented and, you know, a lot of it has to do with the nature of the Neiman Marcus business, but really taking that view of building relationships, thinking about customer lifetime value and that there are things you're going to do that are not profitable in the short term, but will work out hopefully <laughs> over the long term. You know, for the most part, they, I think they have historically. And what do you think uh, from Sears coming out of Sears? You know, minus what's going on now. When when you were there, when you walked out, and you went, "Wow, those are two things." I, I, I or one thing, you know, that I really took away from that experience as it relates to this conversation. Well, there's probably 50 things, but I'll try to put that down. I mean, you know, what's interesting, I think, a couple of things are interesting about Sears. Uh, you know, I think the Sears business was sort of effectively dead in the mid-90s when it became clear that, or started to become clear that customers were shifting towards a different form of distribution to get certain kinds of products and services. And specifically, I mean appliances and, and home improvement. You know, Sears had such a legacy uh, with Ken Warren and Craftsman, uh, and that drove a lot of value. And it just turned out that over time, mall-based stores were not where customers 
wanted to buy those products. And it's a great example of not being sufficiently customer centric because if you really understood and were willing to act, I mean, we understood it, we weren't willing to act on putting your products or, or getting your key core value propositions where the customer is going. Um, and so once, once Sears didn't act on that, um, it was, it was pretty clear that the value was going to continue to migrate away from, from the malls to, to Home Depot and Lowe's and Best Buy and others. So, um, to me, it was, it was both this kind of combination of, of really understanding the customer, but being willing in some cases to blow up what had gotten you to a certain point in favor of something that was going to take you to that next level. It's just taken, you know, sort of 20, 25 years to kind of work itself out but you know plenty of executional issues along the way as well that didn't help well you've said it you said it in both of those answers uh and i'm just going to shift this a little bit that there's an interesting uh piece that you've written around um understanding buying versus shopping that was Sort of the it was a an output of after reading a blog of Seth Godin's who whom I've also had on the on my podcast as well he's one of my favorite people so I was glad to see that that's what the origin of of that sort of idea came for that you wrote about but you just said in a couple of times in there right shopping versus buying and transactional and I think people use shopping and buying in the same sentence like it's the same thing and I really enjoyed how you defined those two things very distinctly, both of you, uh, both Seth and you. But let me let me sort of get from you the difference to that, because I think it frames up everything we've been talking about. One is very experience oriented and, and one is not. Right. One is a different experience, I should right. say. Yeah. Well, um, and by the way, Seth and I have a long history together. He was my first business partner and we went to college together. So it's a lot of this Seth ideas of He's just one of my favorite people. I just, I just, I think he's just yeah. a lovely human being. So well, yeah, I'm a big fan. Brain. But you know, I think fundamentally the distinction is that, uh, at least in the way that uh, a number of people have talked about it, is buying is really kind of task and mission focused. That um, you have a pretty good idea what it is you're looking for. It may or may not be brand specific. Uh, but your goal, your intention is to get the best solution you know, quickly, efficiently, uh, at the best or a really good price. Uh, and that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And, you know, obviously there are points in between. But, you know, for the most part, that's the anchor of one end of the spectrum. But the other end of the continuum is is shopping, which to me is inherently more experiential. It's more of a discovery. Um, you're not... You're not valuing just sort of price and efficiency. You're valuing a, a bigger solution, a more emotional sort of outcome potentially. And the reason why I think it's important is I think it's it's first of all I think as a retailer, um, you know, either from a category strategy or just fundamentally from your business model, you have to pick a bit of a lane because trying and I think it has explains a lot of why a lot of the retailers have gotten trouble getting stuck in the middle is they haven't really decided where they want to be. And so if you're going to focus on buying, um, you know, you have to have a good cost. You have to be super efficient. Uh, in many cases, you're going to find yourself competing with both like Amazon and Walmart. And if you're going to go down that path. Um, you better have your act together. Um, and for mo a lot of people, I think the answer is going to be don't go down that path because it's a race to the bottom. Um, and then, you know, the other option is to, is to try to tilt more towards the, 
the shopping side. And I think the, the difference between buying and shopping in terms of thinking, going back to what we talked about at the outset with this retail apocalypse is, is Amazon and others are really winning on the buying dimension. For the most part, e-commerce is really good at meeting those needs. When you start to talk about shopping, e-commerce often is an enhancer uh, and you may start in a digital channel, but the, the vast majority of sales are either made in or heavily influenced by a physical store. So I think you can kind of explain e-commerce market shares a, a lot along the line, the buying versus shopping distinction. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, even when I read, you know, I do this like you do sort of all it's what, what we do, right. When I read that, I, I had, I had done some work in my previous life around, you kind of have different kinds of buyers, right? Somebody who knows exactly what they want and they're ready to buy. You need to make that very frictionless. And I don't care whether it's a car or, you know, an apple, like it just needs to be easy. Another, maybe I, I know what I want to buy, but I'm going to shop. And I use that term shop from a pricing perspective, right? Or a feature or a service perspective. Like I know what I need, but now do I want to buy it from here that doesn't have weekend support or this doesn't have a good return policy, right? I'm now I'm shopping on some, you know, continuum or some attribute, I'm sorry, that I feel is, is uh, in compelling to me. The next is I know I have a problem. And so I'm looking for a solution. Like I have a leaky roof. I'm looking for someone to fix my roof or I have a business problem. You know, I need to hire more people, whatever it is, right? I know I have a problem and I know how to, uh, and I'm looking to solve it. And the fourth one for me is um, uh, I don't know I have a problem, so I'm not looking. And those are, uh, those are very, very different. So, you know, because then how do you sell? How do you market? How do you service? You know, if I don't know I have a problem, it's a, and it's a complex solution, you know, that's a long sales cycle versus, you know, you know, the other way around. So I used to look at it that way, like from the customer's perspective, where is their right, starting right. point? Well, and I think that's a good way of underscoring potentially the different customer segments and, and the customer journeys. Because the other thing that can happen, I found is, first of all, it, you know, it's certainly possible to be a retailer that has aspects that are very buying driven versus shopping driven. For example, in the department stores, um, you know, you may have basic items, underwear or whatever, which are much more of a buying process, right? And then you might have fashion items, which are more, much more of a shopping process or in the furniture business, you know, mattresses may be very much a buying sort of orientation, whereas you're trying to put a whole living room together is much more shopping. So, Right. Like, I don't know what I want. I, I know I want to redo my living room. Uh, starting so, to look, so the right? same customer sometimes, but, you know, for the same brand could be in buying versus shopping mode. So, you know, I don't want to make it necessarily so black and white. Um, you know, certain categories tend to be maybe more, more tilted towards one end, but, you know, but that's why you have to, I think if you're really customer centric, you have to understand the different customer segments, the different purchase occasions and, and how those journeys um, might be different depending upon the types of customers or the type of product they're buying or service. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I, this time has just flown by. So, you know, in, in light of everything we've just said, which I think is a lot. And for anybody who uh, has anything to do with selling, uh, you know, anything online or in retailers or actually selling products to those people who actually sell online and sell to retailers, right. That they're providing the products that do it. This is a really interesting time that you have to pay attention to all these very subtle um, 
differences between what's working and not working and what customer and what market, what industry and what product and all of those things. It's just a lot of moving parts. But if you were to say, you know, kind of what's next, what, what, what do you think this looks like? Um, somebody just, I put something up online the other day and I said, you know, in 2020 and they were, I, I can't remember the number. It was like, you know, that's only like 80 Mondays yeah. away or something. It's like, oh my God. Right. So, you know, 80 Mondays from now, what do you, what do you think, uh, what do you think will be different, better, worse in retail? Well, I think what's going to continue to put a lot of pressure is, is store closings and just kind of the deleveraging of a lot of, uh, expenses for a lot of these legacy retailers. So I think we're going to continue to see a lot of rationalization and consolidation. I think, um, I think we're going to see a lot more experimentation, uh, but whether, and we, you know, at the beginning we talked about VR and some other things, you know, so I, I'm a little bit more skeptical that some of these things are just more bright, shiny objects that won't necessarily be big things in the next couple of years anyway. Um, the thing I'm most interested in, in some respects is, is just continuing to see more personalization or mass customization. I think part of what's going to differentiate retailers and is starting to differentiate retailers is their ability to, to leverage customer, deep, uh, customer insight and, and data in more profound ways. And so I think that pace of that is likely to pick up, particularly as, as people get better at um, employing machine learning and artificial intelligence. So that, that might be the one that I would say has got more meat to it. Uh, over the next year or two. Yeah, and going back to our mutual friend, right? It's uh, permission marketing, two thousand eighteen. <laughs> well, yeah, and, it, and it's 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 this mantra, and I talk about it in my keynotes a lot of this idea, which is an old idea, but I think it's become more important, and technology has made it much more feasible, which is treat different customers differently. That you know, one size fits all strategies, which a lot of these old retailers still seem to be clinging to, and in many cases, you know, really just don't work anymore. And, uh, you know, there's really no excuse in many cases to not be able to use your data and technology to get closer to one-to-one to -one marketing. So, um, that, yeah, that'd probably be the one I'd, I'd say. Well, excellent. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. I, I'm sure that the What's Next listeners are going to uh, have a very different perspective on retail going forward, kind of what's working, what's not, and what things they might be able to deploy in their own organizations uh, to avoid being caught in the middle and, and being boring and in either way. So I so appreciate your time with us today and joining me on the What's Next podcast. And I hope you had a great time with us and I appreciate it. I have. Thanks very much, Tiffany. What a pleasure to have Steve on the podcast today. It was fantastic to hear from somebody who's in the thick of what's going on in retail. I cannot remember a day that has gone by that there hasn't been a tweet or a blog or a presentation or something that I've heard where everybody's saying retail is dying. It's the apocalypse. I don't want to be blockbustered or I don't want to you know, have what's happened to this particular retailer happen to me. Like, how do I not get disrupted? And he gave some real actionable insights around what it means to be uh, selling or your, what your customers are actually buying and what happens when they're shopping and pivoting towards the customer and being more experiential. I thought his insights from Neiman Marcus and Sears were super insightful. And, you know, if we could only look back to be smarter going forward. So I found it super insightful. I thought I hopefully you enjoyed it as well. I appreciate you listening to the What's Next podcast today. Please don't forget to subscribe, share with your friends, leave a review and have a great day. Thanks again. Thanks again.